Today's scripture reading comes from multiple verses. Luke chapter 9, verses 61 to 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Let me echo the happy Mother's Day greeting for all the moms out there. Um, and uh, I was just telling Eric, I feel like your congregation has grown since the last time I've been here. So praise God for some of the good things he's doing here, including the folks over there. I don't remember that before, so yeah. Um, well, I understand you are in a series in Matthew on why follow Jesus. Why follow Jesus? Because, you know, sometimes Christianity, I think, can feel rather restrictive. Feels like you have to give up certain freedoms, surrender various indulgences, perhaps. Um, put yourself under different obligations. Things that um, may not seem that attractive. So why follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus. We just heard three pretty tough passages that I'd like to explore. Want to make three statements from it and, uh, and build a little from there. I feel like I'm kind of creating a little, a little off my cheek. That... We'll see how that works. All right. So we're looking at Luke 9, 61, 62. I know we just read it, but let me... Read it again there in your bulletin. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you look in this section in Luke 9, there are actually three interactions Jesus has with three different individuals. Either people asking to follow Jesus or Jesus approaching people to follow him. And in this particular Interaction. Here's an enthusiastic, eager follower. I will follow you. I want to follow you, Jesus. First, let me just go back, say goodbye to my family, and I'm with you. And if you consider the context, I think that would be a very reasonable request. I mean, when Jesus in this time, when we talk about following Jesus, it was literally Jesus is like him and his entourage are... All right, let's see if we can. Okay, thank you. Pastor's working together. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Check, check. 
All right. Jesus is uh, walking around Palestine, Galilee with his group of guys. And so when Jesus invites people to follow him, it's literally like hit the road. You know, we're going to go for a walk traveling around Palestine. So you can't just up and leave. You need to at least go (laughs) tell your family that you're going to follow Jesus. You know, don't just disappear. That would be rather rude, don't you think? Rather rude and unnecessarily causing alarm. So it's interesting that Jesus' reply is, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whoa! (laughs) Like, where did that come from? Kind of like, you know, talk to the... I I didn't do that anymore, right? This little... That might date me. Anyway, uh, this attitude, it seems, sounds kind of harsh. And we kind of get the, uh, the, the, the metaphor here. If you're a farmer and you're plowing a field, you better look straight ahead so you can plow a straight line. If you're, you know, looking behind, who knows what your furrow will look like. Why did Jesus say that? I mean, I think we'll have to assume that Jesus saw something more than, it's not wrong. If you need to go somewhere, please do go home. Tell your family that you'll be leaving before you leave. That itself is not the problem. I'd like to suggest that perhaps Jesus saw in the heart of this man an inner unwillingness to let go. That though he may want to follow Jesus and his body would go with him down the road, that there might be parts of his heart that would cling to his hometown, cling to the way things used to be, hold on to the old life. And maybe that's something we can understand. That sometimes when we say we want to follow Jesus, there's a part of us that wants to like, you know, it used to be so much fun when we used to do this and do that, and we got to, and we had, we remember fondly sometimes. I, I, I notice sometimes when people share their testimonies, like they'll talk about before they met Jesus, and like all the wild and crazy things they did, and then they met Jesus, and now they go to church, and you know, like, where is the glow in your story, right? Like, for some people, it's, um, they kind of like their old life, or at least parts of it. They don't want to let it go. And if we do this Jesus thing, well, that might kind of take the fun out of life. Might kind of spoil the party. We might miss out on all the good times our friends are having. It seems there's this sacrifice of things that we've enjoyed. I kind of picture for some people following Jesus, their, their, their feeling is like there's a line between what followers of Jesus should and shouldn't do. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to stay on the right side of that line. But for some of us, we kind of want to get as close to this line as legally permissible without, I mean, we're following Jesus, but hey, is it okay if Christians do this or do that? Like, is that legal still? Because we kind of want to flirt on the edge. Or for some of us, following Jesus is a little like taking your medicine. You want the benefits for sure. You want the benefits, but, you know, you don't really like the medicine. We want enough of Jesus, but not too much. Just enough. 
So why does Jesus demand of this fellow, don't look back? I don't think Jesus is trying to be me. I don't think he's trying to be a killjoy. Our first point is, a follower of Jesus believes that what is ahead is better than what is behind. A follower of Jesus doesn't look back because he or she is eager to move forward. The best days are yet ahead. We, we, more than fame or fortune, comfort or pleasure or whatever else we may have had, now that we have Jesus, there's joy and peace and contentment and purpose that we didn't have. There is life and life abundant so that too much of Jesus could never be a bad thing. This is the source of life abundant. So a few questions here. I've got lots of questions. Do you see Jesus as keeping you from the things you once enjoyed? Do you see Jesus as point, or do you see Jesus as pointing you to something better? Do you see him as taking joy out or putting joy in? I mean, when you read statements like this, no one who puts his hand to the plow is fit for service in the kingdom of God, what do you see? What do you hear? Is this, when you boil it down, is this, a, is this man bad or good? Our next passage is Luke 14, 26, 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are hard words to be sure. When Jesus says hate, I, preachers, commentators are kind of quick to point out, uh, he doesn't literally mean hate your family. It is Mother's Day, and <laughs> you should be kind, at least, to your mothers. Uh, Rebellious kids do not use this as an opportunity to, you know, I don't know. Um, and the Bible commands us to respect our parents, to take care of our families. Jesus himself honored and cared for his mother, even on the cross, to make sure that she was taken care of. Surely this doesn't mean we should hate them. Instead, it's an idiom. It's an expression of saying that we love Jesus so much more than anyone else that the gap almost seems as if it were hatred because our love for Jesus or our love for whoever is so far greater. Anything and everything else is a far distant second. Not that we hate them, but that we love Jesus so much more. Now, that explanation, I think, is good and proper, but I don't want it to Take away the punch of the expression. Hate your mother, father, wife, children, even your own life. So much does Jesus demand our absolute devotion. There are costs to following Jesus. I think especially of a... Some people who come from non-Christian families, and when they decide to follow Jesus, their families, for some of them, they, they throw all kinds of 
alarms and concerns and you're, you're abandoning the family. You're abandoning our culture. You're abandoning our tradition. Like, it creates a big rift. People are disowned. Or maybe not as severely. I think of um, certainly some parts of L.A. where being a Christian, you know, it used to be that if you were a Christian, that was kind of seen as a positive thing. And then it kind of became maybe a neutral thing. Well, certainly, I'm sure we're familiar of places where being a Christian is very much a negative thing to call yourself a follower of Jesus. Sometimes, especially in today's media and political climate, it's just easier to not go there and talk about that. There are costs to following Jesus. Well, I want to take a step back and consider what Jesus just said. What if I said, hey, if you want to be part of my church, you better hate your mother, father, wife, children. You better be ready to die. And if not, forget it. Go home. Go find some other church. Like, what would you think? What would you think of me? By the way, we, I, it also said to carry your cross, right? Jesus says, carry your cross. Today, that's kind of an expression. Oh, I have to bear the cross of my troubles and circumstances. But in Jesus' day, carrying the cross was a literal, like, you carry this wooden cross, and carrying your cross was done by criminals on the day they're executed. They would carry their crosses to the execution site so that they could be killed on them. I mean, when Jesus says carry your cross, it is an expression of martyrdom. So, again, if I were to say, if you don't hate your mother, and if you're not willing to, like, load a gun, cock it, stick it up, up, up on your chin and come follow me, well, forget it then. I don't want you. What would you think of me? I mean, I know Jesus said it, so it can't be bad, right? But seriously, I mean, if anyone said this, would you not think this is an exploitive, demanding, sadistic, crazy cult leader like a narcissistic maniac? No? I mean, who would talk like this? Is that who he is? A crazy, sadistic, narcissistic maniac? How do you read these words? I think the only other possible explanation would be that he is worth it. That Jesus is worth giving up everything you have. That he is so precious. So point number two, a follower of Jesus believes he is worth everything we have. If Jesus said, I want you to give me all that you have and only wants to give you this in return, he would be a bad leader. But if Jesus is saying, give me all that you have because I have, woo, far more to give you than though he demands it all, is he not good for asking you to surrender what you have for the greater good that he wants to give you. It's like the pearl of great price. It's like the treasure hidden in a field 
where people joyfully, gladly surrender all that they have for something they understand is more precious. It's the long-awaited dream come true, Prince Charming or Princess that walks into your life and all of a sudden you will do anything. It's a precious baby, long, long-awaited precious baby to which you will now do anything and everything where someone becomes so precious, you will gladly lay it all down. So when you hear these words, unless you hate your father and mother and you're not willing to die, don't, you know, you're not, you, don't be my disciple. Is this a difficult to appease, demanding l- narcissistic, miserable leader? Or is this a Jesus who is so precious, so glorious, that he's worth everything we've got? What do you hear in his words? What do you see? What do you believe? Matthew 7 says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is saying, hey, it's hard. This is a hard road. The way is hard that leads to life. There's an easier road. There's an easier gate, wide, comfortable paved, smooth, not in Southern California, where you can actually hit the speed limit, you know, <laughs> and uh, fly down the road where, uh, where travel is easy. He says, my road is like a pothole-laden back alley, bumpy and narrow, treacherous and difficult. Isn't it true? This is a narrow road. Following Jesus is a narrow. If you want an easy road, really, if you want an easy road, I would recommend something else. This is not the easy road. It's hard to follow. It's hard to submit. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to pray. It's hard to serve. It's hard to follow Jesus. But I think there are, there are two ways we can respond to this narrow road. One is, dang, it is a hard road. <laughs> this is hard. That's hard. Isn't it hard for you? Hard for me. Man, how hard is it? It's hard. You know how hard it was this week? This week, blah, blah, blah. Hard road. That's right. Man, it's a hard road. Or you could say, this is the road life. Can you believe it? We are on the road to life. I mean, who knows if we would have ever found it, but we are on the road to glory. So I have four boys, um, and when they were, they're older now, but when we, they were young, we took them to Disneyland, which as I was coming down the five, I saw the signs for Disney. I don't know how far that is from here, but anyway, for our part of LA, it was about an hour and a half drive through what felt like bumper to bumper crawling traffic through LA to get down to Anaheim. 
And uh, the kids could have felt, when are we going to be there? Why aren't we moving? I don't feel good. Why does it take so long? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> wine, wine, wine for an hour and a half. Or they could have said, we're going to Disneyland? <laughs> we're going we're to see parades and Disney characters and shows. We're going to do rides and roller coasters. We're going to go to the happiest place on earth. Wow, we finally get to go to Disneyland. Point three, a follower of Jesus focuses on the destination, not the road. The follower of Jesus focuses on the destination, not the road, and so celebrates with anticipation. If you're only focused on the road, you would pick the wide road. You pick the narrow road for where it goes, not how it feels. That's, I see that in Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Yeah, there are sufferings today, but that is nothing. How much we suffer is so small compared to the glory that will be revealed, that we will share in the glory of Jesus? That's a lot of glory. <laughs> That's a lot of share in his glory. Or Peter says uh, that we have an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled, waiting for us. We rejoice even though we have various trials today. There are various trials. There is suffering. It is a narrow road. You know, they say there are more martyrs in the 20th century than any other century of church history. They say there are more martyrs in the 20th century than all the martyrs of every other century combined. It's a narrow road even today. There is suffering, but the issue is, do you see the destination and do you celebrate with anticipation that there is a future glory there is a glorious inheritance that gives us joy, joy down the narrow road. How do you view the Christian life? Is it just hardship and sacrifice, narrow and difficult, or is there joy? We are going to Disneyland. Suppose you had a four-cylinder, 2.0, 132 horsepower, 2011 Ford Focus. If you do have that car, please just forgive me for this illustration, okay? You're pretty happy with the car. It takes you to point A, from point A to point B. And, you know, at most you're thinking, maybe I'll, like, change the stereo, kind of get the Bluetooth thing and, you know upgrade the technology. Maybe I want a new stereo. Your dad, suppose, says, hey, I want you to give me your car keys. I want you to surrender your car. And you're like, dad, don't take my car. 
I like my car. I need my car. You're going to try to take my car? He said, son, just give me your car keys because I want to give you a brand new 0 to 60 in 2.4 seconds, $130,000 Tesla Model S performance with ludicrous mode, 21-inch wheels, and full self-driving capability. So give me your Ford Focus car keys, will you? Do you see a God who's just trying to take away Or do you see a Jesus who is trying to bless you in ways you can't even imagine? What do you believe? What kind of a Jesus do you see? How do you read these challenging words? What kind of a heart speaks them to you? So in our family, Christmas is a big deal because there are lots of presents. Presents from all the aunts and uncles and grandparents and a um, little secret. Well, it's not that big a secret. Our kids have figured this out a long time ago. That all the relatives, instead of buying them because they don't really know, they just send my wife money and then she buys like all the gifts. And she loves it. She loves doing Christmas shopping for the kids. I mean, she spends Weeks and weeks, because she knows the kids inside and out. We homeschool our kids, too. So, I mean, she literally knows. Like, anyway. Uh, so, she spends all this time thinking and preparing and buying. And, and she, she is so, I mean, I'm excited, too. But I, honestly, sometimes I don't even know what's in the box. I, she is like, oh, my goodness. Elijah is going to love this. Oh, my goodness. He's been asking for this. I've been playing, you know, like telling him we can't. But. Caleb, <gasps> Caleb is going to go berserk. Oh, my God. Caleb is going to go, like, over the moon. Noah, Noah is going to, oh, he's, Nathan is going to, we're so excited. Mom is so, so excited. I can't wait to see their faces. I can't wait to see their, in fact, she has the phone already. Okay, all right, open it now. You know, because <laughs> she, she just knows how much they're going to love this. Is that what you see? Is that what you see? Jesus saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, he's gonna love this. She's gonna be over the moon. Oh my goodness, Disneyland! <laughs> when they see the Tesla, oh my God, I can't wait to see their faces. What kind of heart do you see? What do you believe? And is this how we're supposed to see Jesus? Hebrews 11:6 says, "And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." He's saying if you want to please God, you have to believe he exists. You're not going to please him if you don't even think he exists. But then he says, you have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. You have to believe that he is a generous rewarder, that he gives, he lavishes, he is kind, he is gracious. You cannot please him otherwise. 
That is the faith that he requires. That is the faith that honors him to believe that he is as good as he claims to be. And how do we know that he is good? Well, we point first to the gospel. The gospel is a story of not what do we do for Jesus, but what has Jesus done for us? He is the giver. We are the receivers. How do we know that? Because God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died on the cross. When we didn't deserve a thing, he sacrificed his life for us that we might have life in him. See, he loves, he sacrifices, he gives. That's the Christian story. He loves, he sacrifices, he gives. And in that story, we benefit, we receive. He is the good giver. We are the blessed receivers. That's what it is to believe the gospel today to believe that he is good. Let me just flesh this out just a little bit to explore what difference does that make? What difference does it make if you believe that he is as good as he claims to be? I'm going to say it enables a few things. It enables, quote, sacrifice, air quotes here, sacrifice. It enables us to give up the things that he calls us to give up. But to give up your Ford to get a Tesla, sacrifice, right? I mean, It's a sacrifice, but you understand the gospel story, the one who sacrifices is not us. It is he. He sacrifices himself for us. We receive. But believing that he is so good, it enables us to give up the things we do have to give up. It enables us to walk down the narrow road and to endure the various trials that often come. Number two, it enables gratitude and love. Because if that is the story, that he always gives and we always receive, we never outgive God. <laughs> we never outgive God. We never do God any favors. He's always the one being gracious to us. Then in that story, in that world, in that life of faith, we just say thank you, thank you. Thank you, because we're constantly receiving. Thank you for this. Thank you, and thank you, and thank you. And I love you, because you have been too good to me. You have been too good to me. It enables and empowers gratitude and love. Number three, it enables humility. We are not looking for heroes. We are not looking for noble people here. All right, if I, if I told Eric, Eric, I want to take your French fries because I'm going to give you filet. And he says, fine, Paul. Do we go, what a man of moral strength. No, <laughs> there's, there's nothing noble or moral about giving up the lesser for the greater. There's no boast. There's no self-righteousness. And that's the Christian. We are not better people. We are not morally superior people. We're just taking the Tesla over the Ford. 
We're just choosing what we believe is better. There's no boast. We are humbled. We are humbled. Number four, it enables desire. We all run after that which we believe is good. If you think golf will make you happy, off you go. If you think getting fit and losing weight will make you happy, getting married will make you happy, having wealth will make you happy, we all pursue the things that we believe will make us happy. We all pursue the things that we believe will make us happy, and we pursue them with diligence and with vigor. Do you believe that God is good? Because if so, will we all pursue what we believe will make us happy? We all pursue that. And if you believed it, it enables, it empowers that pursuit. You know, having said all this, sometimes it's hard to believe that God is good. Sometimes life is not very kind or fair. And as we've already said, sometimes there are various trials. Sometimes there's suffering. Sometimes the road is very narrow. Sometimes there are real losses and we grieve those losses. Sometimes it sure doesn't feel like God is good. And another sermon at another time, we wrestle with that. I wrestle with that because it sure doesn't seem like a good God would allow certain things. And yet, we look at Jesus, who instead of giving an answer, he walked the Calvary Road to endure suffering and pain. And he didn't need to. He chose to walk that road so that we would be healed so that we could one day be made whole that even in suffering there's a path that points us to the goodness and grace of our redeemer and our ultimate healing and hope in him so is jesus someone you have to guard yourself from you know we want enough but not too much? Or is Jesus someone who fights for you, delights to give to you? Is our story a story of what we have to do for Jesus and what we have to give up for Jesus? Or is a story about what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is doing for us, what Jesus will do for us? Is Jesus someone who takes joy out or puts joy in? Is Jesus a crazy narcissistic maniac? Or is he so good that it's worth everything you could possibly give? Do you believe? It comes down to 
do you believe he's good? You know, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here, and I want to echo the welcome, even though I'm just visiting myself, but we'll welcome each other. Um, If you're exploring Christianity, we want to say, we believe this is good news. I know sometimes it doesn't look like it, doesn't feel like it, doesn't sound like it, but I'm going to say those are misunderstandings, that at the core, it comes down to seeing and experiencing a good God who gives good news to take us to a glorious home and who wants to meet us today. For all of us, I am not asking anyone to make any sacrifices, to be a hero, to be a good person. You can put all those nice, noble thoughts aside for a moment. I'm going to ask you, just pursue whatever you believe is good. Go for it. Go for it. Pursue whatever you believe is good. The question is, do you believe that's Jesus? Do you believe he is good? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to... I think it's defined less by the externals and more by the internal of your faith. A follower of Jesus believes, deep inside, believes that he is good and he is good to me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause to consider what we believe and how that faith, belief, expresses itself in our lives. Lord, I pause, we pause to repent for ways that we we don't believe, and we ask you by your Spirit to show more and more of your heart, your generosity, your goodness, that even in these harsh words and high demands, we hear your love and your graciousness and your generosity calling us to something far better. Oh, Lord, I pray the people of Trinity will enjoy your goodness so sweetly, so fully, that, they're, that they experience that taste of heaven today, here and now, for your glory. Lord, show your goodness to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.